Welcome to Foresight. I'm Greg Williams. We're currently doing a special series in which we spend time with a number of the speakers who we were fortunate to have grace our stage at the Wired Impact Sustainability event in London last November. In today's episode, I speak with Evelina Alago, the client director of Just Climate, an investment business dedicated to climate-led investing launched by Al Gore's Generation Investment Management. Evelina and her team are working on one of the key aspects of the transition to net zero, the massive capital flows necessary to transform the global economy. So this is a really vast undertaking. We're effectively transitioning everything from industry to transportation, construction, shipping, manufacturing, agriculture. Every aspect of modern human economy and society needs to be transformed. And of the capital flowing into climate today, only around 10% is going to solutions for the highest emitting, hard-to-abate sectors that create over 50% of global emissions. And according to the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the estimated climate financing gap for our energy system required to meet the 2050 net zero target is a massive $2 to $3 trillion. Evelina also talks engagingly about how we need to innovate thinking about the role of nature in the transition. How do we bring ecosystem services such as the role of wild animals or weather systems into the global economy? I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Evelina, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. I'm really excited to be here. Always excited to continue the conversations that we have. So, we have... Eight years to halve emissions. Things aren't moving fast enough. We need massive capital flows to decarbonize the economy. So I'd love to start with just what might to you sound like quite a basic question, but I think it's useful for the listeners. Uh, How do you define climate-led investing? Great question um, and a very multi-layered one. I'll give you one factual answer and then I'll give you a little bit of a story to explain why we need the idea of yet another concept in finance. So as we define it, climate-led investing is investing to create the highest possible climate impact. And for us, quite simply, that means the greatest mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions while generating an attractive return for investors. Now, why is this actually necessary? The key thing, as you said, is we are really running out of time. And there's a dependency here. We talk about a vision to get to net zero by 2050. But to do that, we have seven years to almost have our industrial emissions base. And that we, we, we often talk about the process without talking about the end state. And what we need to do is actually pretty colossal. If you take a moment to imagine, we're basically talking about a wholesale transformation of our economy, how we power things, how we build things, how we transport goods across the globe. We're really talking about building a new green, real economy. And that requires capital and a lot of it, as you said, capital to drive innovation, to build these businesses, the climate solutions that will help us decarbonize the way we do things today so that we can get to that net zero end state and then make sure there's enough of them for the economy to actually work. So the issue right now is these climate solutions do exist, but unfortunately they are not getting enough of the fuel and the fodder that they need to grow. And that's not because they're not attractive investment opportunities, which is typically the conclusion that you would reach in that instance. Um, they are. Uh, they are really attractive from a financial perspective, make no mistake. But actually, the reason they don't get the funding they need is quite different. It's actually due to capital allocation models that are no longer fit for purpose. 
finance, just the same as everything else, really needs to evolve for us to meet the climate challenge. And climate-led investing is basically a next step in the revolution and uh, a very necessary one, one of many. And it's basically about using the tools of finance with a very specific goal to start with the science, focus on where can we have the highest climate impact in a relevant time frame, and then underwrite commercially. So that essentially is why climate-led investing exists for us as a concept and, and how we think about it. So I really like that parallel you draw between, you know, the capital allocation models having to change in, in the same way that effectively the global economy has to, to alter. Can you have a sense of the scale of this kind of transfer of public and private capital that we're going to need to divert to climate-led solutions? I mean, what are we talking about here? In, 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 you know, do we have a sense of like how many trillions of dollars this might involve? Absolutely. And it's big numbers. So uh, the economists tell us, and the biggest authority on this is the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They tell us that we need to mobilize about three to four trillion per year in financing for climate solutions um, in the key sectors of our economy every year through to 2050 to achieve net zero. To give you a sense, that's basically about the size of the UK's GDP on an annual basis over and over again. And uh, the spoiler is, of course, is that we are nowhere near that. Um, there's some work been done by the Systems Change Lab, one of the many bodies that track progress against our, our stated goals to get to net zero. And to get to that level, we probably need to increase today's base by about 10x. And that three to four trillion, by the way, is both on the public side as well on the private side uh, of capital deployment. That's that's a significant amount of progress that, that we're missing out on. And I guess the longer we delay it, the harder it's going to become. So you mentioned public capital there and obviously private capital. Can you just give us a sense of the wide variety of places that this capital is coming from, whether it's kind of institutional investors or wh whoever it is? Like, who has this capital and how can it move to this new model so that will drive a global economy that's decarbonized? Yeah, absolutely. So there's what the, the broad landscape of capital is. And there's also the question of which specific forms of it do we need to engage more deeply? So if you think about when we, when we talk about private capital, we're basically talking about a whole range of institutions. We're talking about public and state pension funds. We're talking about the large corporate pensions behind some of the biggest organizations that we are all familiar with. We're talking about large endowments, banks, insurance companies, mutual funds, you name it. So basically anyone that you think of as a typical investor in the economy behind sort of the infrastructure, the businesses that surround us today. The reason we talk a lot about institutional capital and the need for institutional capital when it comes to climate-led investing is quite simply, those are the largest pools of it that we have in the world. And given the size of the challenge, which we just uh, sketched out, we really need those institutional investors to be committing a significant proportion of, of their portfolios to specifically funding climate solutions. And again, climate solutions are things that decarbonize the parts of our economy that need decarbonizing. And in particular, the parts of our economy that are what we call the hard to abate sectors, quite simply the stuff that's actually contributing a ton to emissions, but is very, very, very difficult to shift. To give you an example, we're talking about things like climate solutions to decarbonize steel. Steel production is about 7% of total global emissions. That's like a country in and of itself. Similarly, cement is happening at a similar scale. And the thing is, these are basic materials core to the real economy, our real infrastructure. And demand for them is actually not decreasing. It's increasing in some parts of the world. For example, if you look at sort of emerging markets that are rapidly urbanizing, demand is only going up. 
So this is a problem where we not only need to shift today's consumption patterns, but we need that innovation to subvert the consumption patterns of the future. And there are a few parts of the economy that are hardest to abate. We're talking about the industry, so things like steel and cement. Within transportation, there's a few pockets where we're making great progress, but there's others that are actually a lot more difficult to tackle, like shipping, for example, or heavy goods vehicle trucking. There's great progress happening on EVs, but heavy goods vehicle trucking, for a whole host of reasons, is, is a lot more difficult to decarbonize. On the power side, as we ramp up renewables penetration, we also need to do things like really amplify the amount of long-duration energy storage that we have so that the grids are actually stable enough to absorb additional renewable capacity. So there are a few of these really hard, real asset interventions that need to happen. And we need climate solutions for those to scale up very, very rapidly for us to stay at pace and make sure the development also happens in an orderly way. And we don't have to shock the system at the very, very last minute in order to get to where we need to go. So you talked about institutional capital, institutional investors. We're not moving fast enough. What's the blockage there? Is it, is it what you're describing that a lot of the time they have to create returns for their investors, they have a fiduciary duty, that a lot of climate solutions are long-term, that they're hard to do, so that there's, there's a risk to this capital, presumably? Absolutely. And it's a complex question. I suppose barrier number one is actually one of capital allocation. So maybe I'll, I'll touch on that and then also speak a little bit about time horizons and sort of what's material to investors as a secondary horizon, if you will, that we need to tackle as well. So we keep on talking about climate solutions. Um, what does that mean? What kind of things, what kind of businesses are we talking about? So if you're talking about climate solutions to steel or cement, you're basically talking about a green steel plant that maybe produces steel at 95% lower emissions footprint or cement that is basically a decarbonized version of conventional cement manufacturing. So these are things that exist in the world. It's stuff that we build. It's sort of technically real assets. So they're going to be big. And what that means is, if you think about conventional sources for capital, they will tend to be a bit too large for venture. Venture capital likes to focus on technology. And what we need to do with these climate solutions is focus on the ones that can really scale in the next seven years, coming back to our very profound time constraints. So we're actually looking at the ones where the tech risk is largely retired. We know these things work. We just need them to build them at scale and build lots of them. So VC is not a good fit. Your next turn would probably be to growth equity or private equity, which tends to focus on businesses that are scaling up. The issue is because these are actually really asset heavy, they tend not to fit within the typical parameters of the growth equity or private equity model. That capital typically seeks out things that are a lot more asset light, tech enabled. So even within the climate space, think climate risk insurance, consumer marketplaces, and those kinds of more tech-based asset-like models than actually building stuff and then putting it in the ground. So then you would turn and think, okay, what's the next sort of asset allocation bucket that conventionally we think of? That's infrastructure. That's what we think of when we think, okay, building bridges, building big industrial things. But because these climate solutions are relatively novel, otherwise, you know, they would be a basic part of our everyday lives. They're a little bit too new they're unbankable for infra because typically you'd want to be underwriting project number 500 rather than project number five, which with these climate solutions, that's the tipping point on which they're poised. So in essence, you have an opportunity set which sits outside of the Venn diagram of the primary ways in which investors think about allocating capital. So they just don't have the frameworks, the tools, the ICs to be able to deploy it, right? 
And so that's actually problem number one. And that's an area where we really need to innovate and change our thinking. So start asking a different question, rather, where does this fit? More of what are we trying to solve for? And then can we deploy capital effectively? So that probably is the first piece. And this is where climate-led investing comes in, which is it's essentially an investment style that starts off with a very different question. We start, we're impact-led in the sense that we start with research. Where are the emissions coming from? And where can we invest for the highest possible timely climate impact coming back to this 10-year or really seven-year constraint per dollar invested? But coming back to the point around institutional capital, we are also looking to generate attractive market returns because as you say, these institutional investors have constraints. Pension funds have fiduciary duties to the ultimate beneficiaries and they need to make a certain financial return. So to attract those kinds of capital at scale, you need to make sure that you meet those parameters. And so that's why the seeking these opportunities, which can generate that market return, is so, so, so important. So thinking about larger organizations, all of which are now coming up with sort of some kind of plan for the next 10, 15, 20 years, often under pressure from shareholders. Do you think that a lot of what you're describing, this reallocation of capital, is going to be driven by the fact that for many large organizations, they will effectively not be able to attract the right kind of capital investment if they don't have some kind of very rigorous time-stamped plan in place? Well, in many ways, that would be an ideal outcome because what we're talking about here is, from our perspective, climate as a whole is actually a material financial factor. What's been going on for a long time, which is one of the reasons that we ended up in the situation that we have, uh, with a climate crisis as acute as it is, is that there are lots of things that we have considered outside of the parameters of pure financial investing. We call them externalities. So we have been able to produce a lot of carbon emitted into the air without any cost. And in fact, at some place, subsidies that encourage you to do that. And now we're realizing that there is a very real cost. There's a very real cost in terms of physical harm that we're seeing from acute weather events and other consequences of global warming. But there's also increasingly now, as we're forced to have a much more accelerated policy response, there's a regulatory cost where there's regulation coming in and we're seeing a lot of it, some of it really positive, but some of it punitive, where we're seeing some asset classes become uninsurable and unfinanceable because that's necessary to get the accelerated change that we need. So in essence, there's physical risks as well as regulatory risks that come with climate. And only now are we recognizing those as actually relevant to the future cash flows of a business, for example, in a really material way. And so in a sense, had we started out considering these things and taking a long-term enough lens to appreciate that climate is something that does have bearing on society, not only from a pure social and environmental perspective, but also from a financial, because businesses that are exposed to climate risk are businesses that are in some way weak. They're businesses whose revenues could be hurt or whose profits could be hurt by these sort of physical and regulatory risks. So in a sense, we are probably building a more resilient and more complete way of thinking about uh, financial returns and integrating things that were externalities that should never have been externalities to begin with. So Evelyn, you've, t- you've talked about this enormous opportunity, but it's outside the ven that you've described of institutional capital as it exists currently, it doesn't fit into the model, is this presumably where government steps in? You know, we've seen the IRA in the United States, the Green New Deal in the EU. Is this the opportunity for government to really sort of start thinking about, okay, how do we drive this transition? And also, as part of that, increase growth in our economies? So great question. 
I almost want to break it up into two. One, which is how do you deal with this issue around climate solutions falling outside of typical capital allocation practice? And then what the role of government is in incentivizing that. So on this sort of capital allocation model, that means that investors want to just put things in specific buckets and really urgent, attractive investment opportunities that don't fit into the buckets get neglected. There's a couple of things that need to happen here. One is we just need to remove the buckets or broaden the buckets, if you will. So this is where we come to systems change which is that we are now faced with a problem that we haven't had before. And the system that we have reflects the problems that we had in the past. And this is the best that we've been able to come up with. We actually need to see some pretty necessary innovation around that bucketing type thinking and how you solve for certain outcomes using tools of conventional finance. So I'm not talking about concessionary finance, but just typical investing, but thinking about it a little bit differently. There's a metaphor I like to use, which is there's a riverbed of the norms of finance, of how we allocate capital, how we think about strategic asset allocation and capital flows down that riverbed. If you change the contours of that riverbed, which is the rules of engagement, the future flows of capital will change. The good news there is there are actually institutional asset owners who are already doing this. So we've partnered with a few institutions, like pension funds, insurance companies that have realized that climate is a very new risk. It's systemic risk for their portfolios. It's also an opportunity. And it doesn't lend itself to the ways in which they used to think. Climate solutions span infrastructure and growth equity. They don't fit neatly within these classes, but it's urgent and it's necessary. And so they start with that assumption and then think backwards around what's the appropriate way of deploying capital. So part of it is actually a lot of advocacy and changing in how institutional investors think about asset allocation as an industry. There's a sort of a dedicated part. Government can have a role to play in terms of helping with the advocacy piece helping create norms, because the other thing that makes change difficult is when we don't all align on what that change looks like and what the endpoint looks like. So we have consistency and you have lots of people reinventing the wheel. So that can be incredibly helpful. But then the second piece, of course, is creating the right incentives to do that, not to distort the market, but actually remove harmful subsidies where they're harmful and create incentives and accelerants to ensure that that capital is being deployed once we've also done away with where do we put it, how do we put it in problem and to help speed up and accelerate those flows. Um, and you're right, we've seen some really, really promising legislation come out of the US, come out of the, the EU. Australia has made massive strides. So it does feel like that regulatory response is speeding up um, in intensity with each coming month, really. And presumably there's a a big opportunity here as we kind of you know, re-gear the economy, if you like, that we can embed social equity into economic models, how we think about growth. I'd love to get your thoughts on how we ensure that this is a just transition. Yeah, so there's a lot of conversations going on around this. And the way you formulated the question is really interesting, which is how do we ensure it's a just transition? I think part of it is that we ensure it's a just transition by making sure that it's not just the investors' voices at the table, We cannot have the hubris to say, okay, for example, just climate is an investment business focused on climate. We have lots of climate experts. We know how to fix this. We don't because again, taking a step back, we understand the science. We have a very clear view as to the kind of solutions that will be most effective. But what we're talking about is changing the way people live. We're talking about land use. We're talking about transformation of the job market. We're talking about a pretty, pretty profound cultural shift. And you cannot do that without permission from the communities and the societies that you're impacting. And by permission, I mean, you need their engagement. You need to understand what good looks like from their perspective as well. 
Because as much as we have a very clear blueprint as far as the science goes in terms of where we need to get to, how quickly, how much, the science is the blueprint, but how we get there is through a process of deep community engagement and deep collaboration. Because we've talked a lot about the fact that finance is not doing its part and we need more capital to build and scale these businesses. But let's definitely get that right. But also bear in mind that this is a problem that it's probably the most whole complex issue given the multinational, multicultural engagement that's required to do it. We need regulatory change. We need government capital. We need private capital. We need NGOs to ensure that we think about community voice, to think about any other potential quote-unquote externalities that we should actually be building into our decision-making processes. And so I guess the crux that I'm getting to is the way we ensure it's a just transition is by massively amplifying engagement with community voice and thinking of it not as a milestone, but as a necessary part of our investment underwriting process. At least from the investment manager perspective, that's what we really need to be doing. Just transition is something that we do rather than something we ensure, which is, okay, let's do this checklist. Let's do a survey. Let's do, you know, oh, land use change. We're building a green cement plant. There are a bunch of indigenous communities that need to be moved. We talk to them. They're okay. We move on. It can't be surface. We actually need to fully, again, holding the vision of what net zero actually looks like and the massively different society. We need to be conscious of all of the changes, all of the permission and some of these changes will be traumatic for a lot of people. It's not painless. It would be incredibly Pollyanna-ish to say, okay, got the science, get the money, and it's all going to be done. We're people. Change is complex and ch change is challenging. But realizing that, embedding that, and building that into a process as just good practice for sustainable investment management is how we have a chance at ensuring that just transition. We'll be back with Evelina after a short break. So thinking about how large organisations are approaching this, is there a kind of a lot of box ticking going on? That It feels like there is some backlash against ESG. How do we best think about that transformation that most organizations are going to need to make? Because clearly, you know, the external messaging from many organizations is that, yeah, we're accelerating our progress to sort of net zero or whatever it might be. But I think there is an increasing sort of, not cynicism, but sort of like a, a concern that a lot of this is around sort of, you know, strategic messaging rather than action. I'd love to get your thoughts on, on what you're seeing in terms of how organizations are sort of thinking about that strategically? You know, in many ways, the backlash that we're seeing against ESG, some of it, not all of it, is actually a good thing because ESG investing and sustainability thinking is still relatively new. If you think about sort of generation, the, the broader firm within which just climate sits, it was founded in 2004 and arguably was one of the very earliest to seek to institutionalize sustainable investing as a whole. That's pretty early. There hasn't been enough time for us to have very, very clear standards, norms. And that actually is what lends itself to a lot of manipulation. You have a lot of people who are actually high integrity players who sometimes get it wrong. And you have plenty of people who are trying to game the system and see an opportunity. Okay, consumers are expecting more green things. They expect a lot more social equity. They expect us to think about it. Let's put a label on it and capitalize. Or, oh, investors want to invest, allocate to green stuff. Let's take what we're doing, label it green, and then we can sell. But I think that's actually probably not as big a part of the market as people um, think. 
But what's muddying the waters is that we don't all know what good looks like. A lot of people are competing on the complexity of their bespoke impact a measurement methodology or ESG metric methodology. You know, there's that very famous chart which shows how deeply uncorrelated a number of the most commonly used frameworks for ESG ratings are. And that's the problem. The market is still incredibly immature on measurement, so we can't compete on performance. You need that consistency and transparency. So you stop talking about, oh, how do you do this to what are you doing? And the reason it's so important with climate is all climate solutions are not created equal. So for an investor to say, okay, well, we are focused on, you know, decarbonizing the industrial economy. Okay, are you looking at solutions that result in 15% decrease in emissions from shipping over a 20-year timeframe? Or are you looking for 80% decrease in 10 years? Those are not the same things. And there, we can rely on the science. But we need to be really, really clear and more rigorous. And we need to have more of an industry consensus, again, about what good looks like. Climate is just one pillar in which I'm giving an example. There's, of course, other aspects of sustainability. The S is incredibly important and becoming increasingly so. But with climate, that's probably one area where I can highlight and say, all climate solutions are not created equal. For, for somebody to say, we have a climate fund, they have a climate fund, doesn't matter where you invest, it really does. And that's why we even came up with this concept of climate-led investing, because there are ways to deploy capital that will be deeply impactful in a short-term basis. There will be ways to deploy capital that maybe could be transformative in 50 years. But we have real-life constraints, very real-life physical constraints, and those need to be baked into the process. And we need to get our act together and make sure there's a lot more consistency across the market so we can focus on like-for-like -like comparison and compete on performance rather than our ability to communicate well or market or create very thoughtful methodologies, but that are entirely out of step with what our peers are doing. I'd love to get your thoughts talking about you know, how all climate solutions aren't created equal. Many organizations are focused, a lot of their, their climate strategy is based on carbon credits, which I think is a real point of anxiety for many organizations. I wonder whether some organizations might lower their ambitions simply because the market for carbon credits seems quite opaque. Is that correct? So carbon credits have a role to play when it comes to removals, but we kind of have two issues here. We have, if you use the metaphor of, you know, the carbon in the atmosphere being sort of water in a bathtub, we need to turn off the tap, which is we need to stop industrial emissions and offsetting doesn't do that, right? We need to actually have pretty profound change in how we run things to be able to turn off the tap. And then the second piece, of course, is removals, which is draining the bathtub. At the moment, given how much stock of CO2 we already have in the atmosphere, there is no pathway to net zero that doesn't involve some component of removals. And nature-based solutions, so things like mangrove sequestration, kelp farming, and similar, those interventions are actually really effective ways of capturing, sequestering carbon at a low cost. And of course, they're reliant on carbon credit markets. That's how those kinds of things are made economic, is because companies then buy those credits as a way of managing their own footprint. So there's two pieces. One important piece is you can't net it off. If you have a business, you still need to decarbonize that business and get it as close to net zero as possible and then use removal separately as sort of part two of that process. And then the second piece is, as you rightly say, there's been a lot of press recently, a lot of scrutiny on carbon markets, and there is a lot of opacity. There's a lot of concern and focus on the quality of those credits. And look, it's a good thing. I think nature has be definitely become a lot more prominent, both, you know, 
from the perspective of the two challenges that we face, the climate challenge, but also the biodiversity loss challenge, um, especially in the wake of the COP15 conference, which is, you know, the, the COP for biodiversity that happened last year. A lot more people are talking about nature and there's more scrutiny. And by definition, when there's more scrutiny, you will have more criticism. But it's a good thing because we do need really effective, efficient carbon markets with great carbon pricing to be able to effectively manage that second part of the job that we have as society around removals. You mentioned nature-based solutions. I'd love to dig into that a little bit and get your thoughts. So I was at a conference earlier this week and one of the speakers said that only 5% of public companies have done a science-based assessment of biodiversity loss. Is there a tension between climate and and biodiversity? So organisations are maybe told by their strategy advisors, their ESG survivors, okay, you need to plant a million trees. Whereas ecologists are saying, actually, no, we need to protect the trees that we already have because those are mature ecosystems. How do you think about this? Yes, you highlight a really, really important problem, which is that we, as biodiversity comes onto the map of more corporates and more investors, is that we risk taking the same narrow aperture approach to this that we did with climate, which is what led us to this place. Nature with regards to climate and biodiversity is inextricably linked. And we need to view these as ecosystem services as a whole, rather than saying, I'm just doing this for the climate piece. Because as you say, you could end up doing some really perverse things. For example, if you're looking at a piece of land and you have two options, you could rewild and you could have something that mirrors the ecosystem of what it would have been a hundred years ago, which might be some scrubland, some trees, some areas of sort of more open growth and, and grassland. Or you could plant it with monoculture of conifers that you know are really good at sequestering carbon. If you take the very narrow, simplistic approach, you're like, well, I'm going to plant the conifers, but then you're not integrating all of the other considerations around ecosystem services, around the other roles that actually the natural environment has to play from biodiversity and maintaining certain ecosystems, maintaining the health of the soil, using it as protection against extreme weather and all of those things. So I think what we're seeing is There is always a temptation to simplify the problem. And especially here, we like to focus on things we can measure. One of the challenges with biodiversity as opposed to climate within nature is with climate, we have a single commodity that we can focus on, which is carbon. And there are carbon markets and carbon has a price. And so it's easier to get comfortable with that. Biodiversity is more complex. It's not a commodity. So there isn't a single credit that you can buy or sell or trade. So you can easily integrate it into a decision-making model. There's some fantastic work happening, by the way, on sort of place-specific indexes of biodiversity. So investors can start to track that. Not only investors, ecologists, but then investors can track it over time. So if, for example, you are backing a project to increase biodiversity, you do have a real practical data And by the way, technology around this is phenomenal in terms of being able to track changes around the density of a particular biome and everything else. So technology has been a real boon to helping create more transparency around this and facilitate the creation of a better market around it. But that's also one of the challenges. The reason there's this tendency to oversimplify is one thing is easier to understand and invest in than the other. But we need to stay away from the temptation to do that, reduce it and end up in a similar place where we have a huge issue that we could easily have avoided if we had just internalized the more complex piece into our decision-making process. Is this fundamentally about putting a value on ecosystem services, such as, I don't know, the role of wild animals, the role of weather systems in, in the global economy? In a way that it is. For many people, it's an emotive issue. 
the idea of putting a financial worth. I think what we need to say is that putting financial value on these things doesn't mean that that is their sole value. A lot of these ecosystems have profound cultural, spiritual, and intrinsic value to a lot of the communities who live in them, who enjoy sort of the benefits of ecosystem services and nature itself. So I think one clarifier is that as we move to be able to assign economic value to these services, it doesn't mean that the sole purpose of which we conceive uh, That's the sole value that we attach to them. But what putting an economic value does is that it helps us integrate them into economic decision-making. And that is really critical because it means that we won't... There is a cost to destruction. There is a benefit to improvement and planetary restoration. And that's really the endpoint that we're getting to. So we've talked a lot about the role of organizations. We've talked about government. Um, We've talked about institutional investors. What does this fundamentally mean, though, in terms of the opportunity for investors? Like, what role can they play in capturing the opportunities around this, this transition? So the role is colossal and, and not bounded um, sort of on the upside in the sense that, one, we know we need to increase flows by about 10 times into the space. And if you're looking at it from a, sort of an asset owner's seat, you want to do that from two perspectives. One is that there's actually a really compelling tailwind that comes from investing behind climate solutions that are aligned with a net zero end state, if you have a long-term view. As time goes on, as we see a deeper regulatory response, there is more of a, you could call carbon optionality attached to things that are cleaner, greener, and aligned with that end state. So these businesses are likely to become more valuable. Consumer behavior is changing. The regulatory environment is changing. And as we have more and more investment pour into them, they become more and more cost competitive with brown alternatives. So in essence, backing a portfolio and having those things as part of your strategic asset allocation means that you get to benefit from the upside. And then the flip side of that, of course, is about managing risk. If you have a portfolio that's tied up in a lot of things that are legacy, you're also exposing yourself to the reverse of the things I just outlined, which is as you see a strengthened policy response, as you see consumer behavior change, and actually as you see some of the financial market change as well, there are certain industries that are now uninsurable, unfinanceable because no one wants to touch them anymore because they are just seen as incredibly dirty, incredibly harmful, and there is a sort of shift away. That has its own problems, by the way, in the sense of we need to change and shift. We can't just walk away from things we've done in the past. But coming back to this rhetoric, there is a real risk for investors there. So both as a way of creating economic opportunity, but also managing the overall risk of your portfolio, there is a real incentive for institutional capital to flow into these spaces. And the good news is that it is. And I always like to focus on the good news when we talk about climate. There's a lot of things we're not doing right, we're not doing or we're not doing fast enough. But the benefit is, look, climate flows are increasing. We are seeing more and more institutional asset owners allocate in this climate-led way, focused on the highest impact solutions, focused on the things that are around our real economy, as well as also, of course, pouring capital in some of the ancillary services that are necessary for this, you know, net zero consistent world to function around, you know, how we measure this stuff, how we capture it, climate insurance policies and similar. So the path is rough, it is torturous, and we have a long way to go, but we are starting to head in the right direction. The path is tough. It's torturous. We have a long way to go. But let's, let's, I know that you're trying to focus on the positive. So let, let's look forward. I know we've got the seven-year time constraint that you've mentioned. If we get this right, can you just give us a sense of what you know the next seven to 10 years 
would look like in terms of the way we can make progress in terms of capital allocation to, uh, you know, a, a green uh, green solutions. So let's think about this as we transition to that sort of net zero world. The first step, of course, is you know it starts with the capital. The capital is the fuel, and so what we would start to see is that this climate-led investing focused around the highest impact climate solutions will become an ordinary part of what we call strategic asset allocations. So you will be seeing state pension funds, public pension funds, endowments, insurers think about their allocation to climate solutions, the highest impact ones, in the same breath as they think about, okay, how much am I putting to fixed income? How do I think about my exposure to public equities in X space and similar? What that means is that there is, will be a great deal more capital to help these climate solutions to the highest emitting, hardest to abate sectors scale up. So green steel, ways to produce lower carbon cement, ways to produce much lower uh, carbon fuels for aviation, for example. You're going to see the businesses that offer these solutions scale up because they have the capital that they need to build, to grow, and make sure there's lots and lots of them replicated. And what that means is that we start to change the footprint of our industrial base, of our real economy. We change it today, and it also means that we get off a trajectory where we're in a world that's still rapidly urbanizing in many areas, which is still undergoing rapid population growth, but the footprint associated with that starts to go down. And I think as we do those things, it will also become clearer. We're pretty good at measuring scope one, two, and three emissions. We will probably get a lot better about thinking about avoided emissions. And as we successfully reduce the footprint of our industrial base, we can also get really, really thoughtful about removals, how we remove carbon and how we keep it from coming back into the atmosphere. So coming back to the nature piece, part of it is using nature to capture carbon and also remembering that we need to keep it there. So we need to not just chop down pre-existing forests with a view of like technology down the line somehow we'll sort it out. So I do sincerely hope that if we make this change and as we make this change, there will be a deeper commitment to much more systems thinking around this and that net zero becomes not just a scientific endpoint, but becomes a byword for a broader, much more sustainable model of capitalism. And this is something I care about quite deeply. And if, if I may, I'll give a little bit of more of a personal story. My background is I'm of mixed heritage. I'm from Kenya and Ukraine, two very, very different countries. But in a way, their trajectory, their economic trajectory is quite similar in that there is always this tension between creating economic opportunity today by cannibalizing tomorrow. So I was born in a steel town um, in Ukraine, which provided a lot of the most secure jobs. So it was very aspirational to work in a steel plant. But then in the summer... The sea would be closed several days because of all of the waste that would be dumped into it. It's also had my town the very dubious pleasure of being one of the most polluted towns in that part of Eastern Europe with, you know, really high rates of cancer, bronchitis and similar. And so you have to ask yourself, there's got to be a better way that we can do this in the sense of we recognize the need to create economic opportunity, especially as you think about emerging markets, which still haven't had the opportunity to enjoy a lot of the benefits we enjoy here. But there are ways to do it without cannibalizing the future. Climate gives us an example of what happens when that short-term thinking occurs and we don't integrate the consequences of our decisions into our decision-making today. But here we have an opportunity to turn that on its head. So net zero can be a much deeper catalyst for integrating a lot of the things that we still have to work into to make sure that we continue to create jobs and economic opportunity and resources, but in a way that's much more thoughtful and much more holistic and much broader than in the ways that we have been so far. 
Evelina, thank you so much for sharing that story and also for your incredibly thoughtful answers to the questions um, throughout the podcast. It's been absolutely delightful talking to you and incredibly illuminating. Um, you mentioned time constraints for climate. We have our own time constraints. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we'd love to have you back at some point to see how the transition is going. Craig, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, and let's hope that when we have that conversation, we're going to be talking a lot more in superlatives. So uh, fingers crossed. And in the meantime, we have a lot of work to do. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it really does help us to build the wide community. Thank you so much. Wired Foresight is a Condé Nast Entertainment production. Jessica Taylor is our managing producer. Emily Elias is our producer. Annalise Begent is our production assistant. Jake Loomis is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Hannah Brewer, Jordan Bell, Peyton Hayes and Nico Steele. I'm your host, Greg Williams. We'll be back with a conversation next week with Alyssa Gilbert from Imperial College London. We'll be talking policy and regulation. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>